Let me invite you to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter if you have not yet memorized the verse that you're actually looking at. So you can either turn there or you can just look at the screen. If you want to look at the context again, you can turn to the verse, but we're going to be going all over the Bible actually today, at least all over the New Testament. Uh, Let's go ahead and and just review uh, this verse that we've been looking at the last few weeks to have it in our minds and hearts as we begin uh, to think on these things. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says this, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In almost uh, 27 years now of being a pastor I will tell you that I have seen way more than my share of intensive care units and um, hospice rooms and funeral parlors. And when you walk into one of those places, it is never easy. But sometimes it's easier than others. And that's because in those cases, there's, there's almost something in the air. There is a feeling there that is, that is almost tangible sometimes, a very positive energy that just transforms the whole atmosphere of that room. That quality, that, that positive energy is not always there in those circumstances, but when it is, it makes all the difference in the world. It can even transform a situation that is absolutely devastating into a kind of worship service. And that quality, that that's something in the air that I'm talking about, and maybe you've sensed it too. It has a name. It's called hope. Hope. In 1 Peter 3.15, the, the verse we're looking at here for this little mini-series on personal evangelism, sharing our faith with non-believers, it says that we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. That means, first of all, that whatever this thing called hope is, We're supposed to have some of it in us, right? That's part of it. And then, second of all, if we have it, if we have that hope in us, then people, other people, some people, maybe not everybody, but somebody will eventually notice. Maybe even enough to ask us questions about it or to have a conversation about it. So so it must come out of us, it must come out of us somehow. It must show up, it must be demonstrated in some way. So What is this hope? What does hope even mean? The online Merriam-Webster dictionary went out there just just for fun to look at it, and I I found two main definitions of the verb to hope. And there's a subtle difference between them. See if you can pick it out. Here's the first definition that, that comes up. It says this, hope, to hope is to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true. To want something to happen or to be true. That's definition number one. Here's definition number two. To desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. Do you see the difference there between the two kinds of hope? If you are a Wake Forest basketball fan right now, okay, you hope that your team will go to the NCAA tournament. That is a very unlikely hope, (laughs) since they would probably have to win the ACC tournament in order to get in, okay? If you are a UNC fan, 
you feel a little bit better after, I think, after yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> you hope your team gets selected, right? You want it to happen. I don't want it to happen, but you want it to happen. And, but you're still kind of on pins and needles because they probably have to win one more game, right? They're, they're what we call on the bubble. On the other hand, let's say that you're a Kansas fan. You have a different kind of hope. If you're not a basketball fan, Kansas is like the number five or number two team in the country or something like that. And that's why you have a different kind of hope. Because when, when you look at the brackets on Sunday afternoon in a couple of weeks, you have no doubt that your team will be there because they're one of the best teams in the country and they have a great record. So your hope, unlike with the other two teams, is the second kind of hope. It's not just wanting something unlikely to happen. It's not just something, wanting something to happen that probably will happen. It's wanting and firmly expecting something to happen. Your hope is secure. It's certain. It hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. But you know that it will. And so you have that kind of hope. Now, the hope of a Christian, the hope of a Christian, our hope of salvation, our hope of eternal life, is the second kind of hope. It's, it's the sure and certain kind, not the wishful thinking kind. In fact, it's even more sure than the hope of Kansas getting into the NCAA tournament. I mean, theoretically, Kansas could have a big scandal in the athletic department or a massive COVID outbreak or something and not get to go. But with our hope... There are no technicalities. There are no exceptions. There are no last-minute surprises. Jesus is never on the bubble. He's a sure thing. And that is what transforms that funeral parlor into a place of worship. Even when, yes, it's also a place of sadness at the same time. And it's also what sometimes distinguishes us Christians from the people around us who don't know Jesus and prompts them to ask us questions, or if not, at least to wonder why we face the trials of life so differently than they would under the same circumstances. Because if there's one thing that characterizes life without Christ, it's a lack of hope. It is. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that, that we believers don't grieve like those who have no hope. He says in Ephesians 2 that those who don't know Jesus Christ are without God and without hope in the world. Galatians 5, 4 and 5 reminds us that there are even a lot of upright, moral, religious people out there doing their best, trying to earn their salvation through their religious activities. And in doing this, they've lost out on the real hope, which comes only through the righteousness of Christ. And so those people are hopeless too. One thing you do when you share Jesus with someone is you offer hope to someone who has no other way of finding it. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time today is ask a couple of questions about this hope. And as we do this, um, we will be darting around to different places in the New Testament, and I'll try to, 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 to let you know where we're headed, but you don't have to turn to all of them, but we'll mention a whole bunch of verses to, in getting our answers. So this is going to be a little bit different than how we typically approach the Scriptures, which is to go kind of on a deep dive on a verse or two. Today we're going to do more of a survey and less of a deep dive like we usually do, but I think you'll catch on. The two questions are simply these. Number one, where does our hope come from? Where does our hope come from? What's its source? Where do we get it? Where can we find it? And number two, how is that hope demonstrated? Meaning, how does it show up in our lives in a way that might actually prompt somebody who doesn't know Jesus to wonder about it or to ask about it? So, first of all, where does our hope come from? 
this hope, this certain hope that we have? Well, first and foremost, let me be very blunt with you, okay? The hope that we have is not anchored in this life. It isn't. It comes from a promise that we have from God about the next life. It comes from a promise that we have from God that there is something coming for us in the future that is way better than anything we are experiencing in the here and now. If, you are, if your greatest and most compelling hope is for something that will happen to you or may happen to you in this life, in this current world, then that is not the characteristic hope of a Christian. It just isn't. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people to be most pitied. Now, he isn't saying we can't hope for things in this life. No, of course we can. We should. But listen, if that's all there is, then there's no reason to be a Christian, certainly. Because the greatest hope of Christ's people is anchored in the age to come in a place where moth and rust don't corrode, a place where thieves don't break in and steal, a, a place where crushing disappointment and heartbreak are no more, and where death will be a thing of the past. That's where our hope is. If you could go tomorrow to a North Korean labor camp and visit one of your Christian brothers who is confined there for life, and you ask him where his hope is anchored, he will be a lot less confused than you and I and our friends here in America often are about where a Christian's ultimate hope comes from. Our blessed hope, as the Bible calls it in Titus chapter 2, is, quote, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. Jesus is coming for us. Either when we die or when he comes back here for good to make all things new, Jesus is coming for us. That is where our hope comes from. It comes not from a temporal promise, but from an eternal one. Those who hope in Christ will live beyond the grave in eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal glory, an eternal relationship with the God who loves us with an everlasting love, along with all his other redeemed people, because Jesus Christ, by dying on that cross and then rising again, has destroyed death and won for us eternal life. That's our hope. That is ultimately where our hope comes from. It is anchored in eternity. But how does it grow? How is it cultivated? How do we get more of it? There's another passage that tells us the answer to that question. And I dare say you're not going to like it a whole lot. Here's what it says in Romans 5. It starts out good. It says, we rejoice. Good start. We rejoice in our sufferings. Uh oh. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, that is a rather curious chain reaction to most people, but this is how God very often works in our lives. He uses the suffering, the pain, the opposition, the disappointment, and loss that we go through to break our addictions to the blessings and the pleasures of this world. Not because those things are all bad, but because he wants us to learn to long for the greater blessings and pleasures that await us at his side in the age to come. The passage goes on to say this, and then we know that hope does not disappoint. 
Hope doesn't disappoint us. You could translate it, hope does not put us to shame. I kind of like to translate it, hope does not leave us hanging. It doesn't leave us hanging. And why is that? Paul tells us. He says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given us. You know what this means? It means the more confident you are in God's love for you, the more the sufferings of this life will produce hope in your heart. On the other hand, the more unsure you are that God really loves you, the more those same sufferings will erode your faith and drive you toward despair. And the knowledge of his love comes from his Holy Spirit. Most of you have probably heard by now about this big revival. Some are calling it an awakening that is going on over at Asbury College over in Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, I, I listened to some of the message, message that God used to set this off. You can find it on YouTube. It's out there. Um, it's a pretty low-key thing, honestly. It isn't a big woo it's, it's just a very simple sermon about how we can never love others the way that God calls us to until we are absolutely convinced of God's love for us. And the students that came to the altar that day were looking just for that. They were looking for the Holy Spirit to bring them some assurance of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. And for a generation that has not known a lot of enduring, faithful, personal, committed love, that simple invitation turned out to be absolutely transformational. You will not really have a lot of hope in your life until you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ even when you were dead in sin. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved you. Ephesians 2.4. I don't usually quote hymns at you, but I came across one in a book that I'm reading this week, and it kind of got to me. It was written by a Scottish minister named George Matheson. Uh, Matheson was blind, uh, and his fiancée had recently broken up with him, quite possibly because she could not handle the prospect of being married to a man with no eyesight. On the day of his sister's wedding, you can imagine the mixed feelings he might have had on that day, Matheson says this in his journal. He says he was suddenly seized by what he describes as, quote, severe mental suffering. And it was in this state that the words of this hymn came to him, and he said, almost as if dictated from somewhere outside of him, and he says, in the course of five minutes, he jotted down the lyrics to what became his most famous hymn. It's called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I'm just going to read you the first stanza and the third stanza. It says this, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Verse 3, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. If you are absolutely convinced of the truth of God's love, a love that will not let you go, then the sufferings of this life will strengthen you instead of destroying you. In other words, they will result in hope. Our hope ultimately comes from the promise of an eternity with Christ, and it is cultivated through suffering 
and adversity, but only as we experience these things in the context of God's great love for us, which He proved to us beyond the shadow of a doubt at Calvary. That's where hope comes from. So now let's talk about how hope shows up in our lives, what people might notice, how is it demonstrated. What people might see in us that would possibly lead to a discussion where we can give them the reason for our hope, like it says in 1 Peter 3.15. There are lots of ways, uh, probably more than I'm going to share with you today, but let me run through some of the big ones with you rather quickly. I'm going to make sure you let, to let you know where these are found in the Scriptures, so if you want, you can explore these further on your own. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says this. It says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Patiently. So hope often shows up in our lives as patience. Patience. Most of us know what it feels like to be impatient, right? I do. Most of us know what it's like to feel all impatient and jittery as we wait for something and hope that it happens but we're not sure or that it's taking too long or something's getting in our way. We're anxious, we're on edge, we're not very nice to people, we might lose our temper. But remember what this hope is. This is not the hope it happens. This is the, I know it's going to happen. I expect it to happen. It's a sure thing. So forgive me for one more sports illustration, okay? But it's getting toward March, and I start thinking about basketball type things, and so these pop into my head. Let's say I am watching a big tournament game, and things are not going so well for my team. Let's say that they're down by 14 points with nine minutes left, and it's just looking horrible. You know, if that's happening, I will be on edge. I will be feeling anxious. My blood pressure will be high. My anger will not be far from the surface. I will think that the referees are all evil men. If, if you call me up at that moment, you will not talk to the nicest version of me. In fact, you'll probably not talk to me at all because I will screen you. But, but on the other hand, on the other hand, what if I was watching a rebroadcast of the same game on the next day? And I hadn't seen the game but I had read about it, and I knew that my team came back from 14 points down and won the game with a spectacular shot at the buzzer. Now, if I knew that, do you think my demeanor would be any different while watching? Absolutely. That would be patient, Paul. Right? That would, I would be happy and calm as I enjoyed the game. I would be able to be more considerate and gracious with you, even if you gave me a hard time for some reason. Why? Because my hope would be secure. Paul says, if our, hope, if our hope in heaven is indeed secure, if we hope for what we do not yet see, and he means with that biblical heavenly certain hope, not the sketchy worldly kind, that there will be an attitude of patient endurance in us, regardless of how things look on the outside. And patience like that, that is something that people in your life will tend to notice because it isn't very common. All right, that's one thing, patience. Here's another, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Don't you love that name for God, by the way, the God of hope? Yes, he's the God of hope. And as the God of hope, it says he fills us with his Holy Spirit, through his Holy Spirit, with joy and peace. Joy and peace. What, what are the two most common mental and emotional stresses that people are dealing with today. 
depression and anxiety. What are the opposites? Joy and peace. Both are part of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, part of the fruit of the Spirit. But here they are intimately connected with hope. As your hope becomes more and more anchored in Christ and in his eternal promises, rather than the fleeting promises of this world, the more your anxiety and depression are going to give way to peace and joy. A serenity in your life, even when things around you are in upheaval and a deep sense of well-being that you have that allows you to rejoice even in the midst of your trials. Do you think people might notice that? A jailer in Philippi did in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were put in prison and they wouldn't stop singing even though they were behind bars and their feet were bound in the stocks. They're singing. And then when the earthquake came, guess what he did? He immediately ran to those two guys and asked them to give him the reason for the hope that was in them that had given them that joy and peace so they could sing while they were in prison. So let me ask you, when the earthquake comes, in the life of your non-Christian friend? Will you be available and accessible, and will he notice a peace and a joy in you that makes him more likely to listen to what you have to say? It all depends on where your hope is. It all depends on where your hope is. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3 is a really cool chapter of the Bible that is all about what Paul calls the hope of glory, our hope of glory. He talks a lot about these heavenly promises, and he reminds, he talks about Moses a lot. When Moses went up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, we talked about that actually a few weeks ago in our other series, but Paul reminds us that Moses had gotten to talk to God face to face, and so when he came down, his face was absolutely glowing with God's glory. But then he says this, that because of what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us, we are headed for a glory, an everlasting beauty and wonder that far surpasses anything that ever happened to Moses at Mount Sinai. Because his was just a reflected glory that was wearing off. Ours is actually shining from inside of us. And then he says this, since we have this hope, we are very bold. We're very bold. The word means honest, straightforward, and outspoken since we have this hope. What is Paul saying? He's saying the more hope you have as a Christian, the more likely you are to talk to other people about Jesus. It won't matter that they don't believe you. It won't matter if they think that you're weird. And in some parts of the world, including where Paul lived a lot of his life, it won't matter if they threaten to throw you in jail and kill you. After all, what can they really do to you? They can't really kill you because you've already died and come back to life. They, can't, they can chain you up if they want, but they can't take away your freedom in Christ. They can talk bad about you, but they can never take away God's good opinion of you because that is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers you everywhere you go. So what can they do? Now, we're bold then. doesn't mean that we're contentious or rude or obnoxious. Certainly not. What it does mean is that we are not overcome by fear when it comes to speaking the name of Jesus in conversation with others. And not only that, but we can also afford to be straightforward and honest about some other things, like our weakness, like our shortcomings, even our sins. Because real hope has banished the insecurity that makes us need to hide everything to protect our reputation and our self-image so we can be straight with people. Of course, another reason that that hope makes us bold is that we want everyone else to know 
about the hope that we found, and we're excited about it. The other day, I was at the bedside of a precious lady in our congregation who was likely only days or maybe hours away from going to be with Jesus. And I took her hand, and she looked up at me, and the first thing she said was this, I'm going to heaven. And then she immediately said to me, I hope you are too. Her hope came out of her in a boldness that was not afraid to challenge everyone around her, whether it was her family, her friends, the hospital staff, or even her pastor, to make sure that none of us would miss out on the hope that she had and none of us would go into an eternity without Jesus. Okay, real quickly, i got two more. They'll be quick, but there may be others, but these are the two that I want to tell you about. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 is one of my favorite verses. It's one of those faith, hope, and love verses, like in Corinthians, but it's not the same verse. Paul here, he commends the church at Thessalonica for their work produced by faith, the labor that comes from love, and the endurance that results from hope. In other words, if you have faith, you'll work to serve Jesus. If you have love, you'll work really hard even when it gets difficult. And if you have hope, you'll never give up. The more hope we have, the better we get at expectantly waiting for things we don't have yet, the less likely we are to give up on tough situations or on tough people, and that will set us apart. And then lastly, 1 John 3, 3 says, it, says this, that when Jesus appears one day, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day, Christian, you will see the one who loved you and died for you, face to face. You will look right into his eyes and you will run into his arms. And then John says this, everyone who has that hope in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. If we're believers in Jesus, did you know that we are looking forward to a wedding day? It's a big old wedding day the best one ever in which we will be the bride and he will be the groom. And Ephesians 5 tells us that the reason he died for us is so that his bride would be perfect without any spot or blemish. Now, if that's what his heart is like for us, then why would we want to spill coffee all over our wedding dress through sinful attitudes and, and ungodly actions? Our hope, our hope, by allowing us to set our minds on things above, not on earth, helps to purify us from sin. It makes our lives look different. Or as that passage in Titus 2 puts it, our blessed hope that Jesus is one day coming for us enables us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as we interact with the world today. And just maybe that will be enough to stir someone's curiosity about this hope of ours. So just to sum up, this hope we have in Christ comes from the promise of everlasting life with him. It is cultivated through suffering, and it is sealed by the assurance that he really loves us. And this hope shows up in our lives as patience, joy, peace, boldness, and increasing godliness and self-control in the way we conduct ourselves. And this hope is not just wishful thinking, it is a sure thing. Okay? That's our hope. That's the hope that's in us. So let me close with one final question, okay? How do we know it's a sure thing? 
I mean, how, how do we know our hope is secure? How do we know there really is an everlasting life waiting for us and that we're not just a bunch of self-deluded, pathetic people here who just wasted a whole nother hour singing songs to some imaginary God who can't save us? How do we know? There is only one way we can be sure our hope is real, and that is if Jesus is really alive. If he's not, then what are we doing here? Or what are we doing any other time in our lives other than just you know, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? Because if Christ is not alive, the Bible freely admits that openly there is no hope. We have no hope. We are the most ridiculous people on earth, as a matter of fact. But if he is alive, then nothing can ever take away our hope. Why not? Because ultimately our hope is not just in the promise, but it's in the person who made the promise. And in that case, if that's true, then that means that our hope would actually be alive. Right? Peter thinks so. Listen to how Peter starts off his letter that contains the verse we're looking at. In chapter 1 he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's right. Our hope is alive. Our hope is alive, which probably has something to do with how a man, Peter, who couldn't even bring himself to admit that he knew Jesus the night before he died, a few days later couldn't stop talking about the guy. Think about it. He came back from the dead. What is the reason for the hope that is in us? What is our living hope? In one word, it's Jesus. It's Him. Let's pray as the worship team comes and we'll just seal this with one more song.